and welcome to another episode of Cinema in Seconds. This is the, the podcast where we talk about fearful moments in frightful movies. And uh, My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we and... have another new guest this week, uh, Brooke. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You betcha. <laughs> Lovely to have you with us. So long time listener, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, you mentioned it's our, our another installment of our fearful and frightful episodes. It is our last fearful and frightful episode. That's right. It is our third of our horror trilogy this month. And mm-hmm. this week we're talking about modern horror. So we're talking about some of the newer horror movies that have been coming out. Yeah. I feel like horror has really kind of found its footing again lately in the last few years. It yeah really i mean found a new stride yeah there's certainly like a lot of writing about new golden age of horror and you've got a balance of you know the indie a24 stuff which actually has a really sizable audience despite being independent um which does really well and is very well reviewed but then even in like really mainstream circles stuff like you know the jordan peele stuff obviously stands out as being a really strong mix of uh escapist popcorn fare and really highbrow and and ambitious stuff but even a movie like the invisible man which is a lot more i think modest in its aims is very good for what it's trying to do and a really strong example of the genre so yeah i mean i don't know about everyone else's picks but i i have one pick from like the modern horror renaissance and then one pick that's very much not that but i think it'll be fun to talk about so Brooke, are you a big horror fan? Is is this your jam, horror movies? Yes, yeah. <laughs> admittedly so. Um, yeah, I definitely watch a lot of horror, um, which might drive Dan crazy because we watch a lot. And Brooke's my girlfriend. We should probably mention that. <laughs> <laughs> um, he gets a little sick of horror after a while. When, uh, well, do I have your permission to relay the famous story? Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, last year, um, it would have been about November at this point, and throughout October, we'd watched tons of horror films. Like, there's the Criterion Channel 70s horror playlist, which had like 30 movies. We watched all of them. We watched the first 15 Showa era Godzilla films, and then wow. right before that, in wow. September, we watched the American The Grudge trilogy. We watched all eight at the time saw movies just before that so we'd gone through like a lot of horror in the last three months and it was one random night november i was like well what do you want to watch tonight she looks at me and goes well i'm always down for a horror film i was just like can we watch something else (laughs) like i was just like this drained like no never (laughs) like a like a just this soulless body so yeah that's uh that's uh, very different from our household where <laughs> last night horror? last night my wife is like well i'm gonna carve a pumpkin should we watch a let's watch a horror movie do you want ghostbusters or beetlejuice <laughs> those, <laughs> those were our options those are good movies <laughs> pretty sure we watched all the paranormal activity movies afterwards too yeah that's what we did next we still that's haven't intense. seen the last one the ghost dimension possibly because it's called the ghost dimension yeah. who knows <laughs> It could be. It's like this one can't be that good. <laughs> so I kind of liked those movies though, which I which surprised me. I wasn't expecting to. I did see the first one and I I appreciated it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Third one's good too. 
And actually the, I think it's the fifth one is the marked ones, which sounds like when you read the title, it's like a direct to video spinoff, but it's pretty decent. It's, you know, better than two, better than four. Four is pretty bad. And it's probably better than the ghost dimension. <laughs> well, you'll have to watch yeah. it to find out. Yep. Let us know. So, all right. Well, yeah, we're a horror loving household. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to talk about the modern horrors because I feel like everyone's, there's so much complaining about the state of movies right now. And some of it is legit, right? The fact that it's all blockbusters and there's no middle movies anymore. But then horrors kind of got carved out its own place in that where, and it's probably has to do with the budget. It probably has to do with a lot of things, but it's allowing creativity from these uh, filmmakers in ways that maybe the modern blockbusters aren't. And whereas the middle movies that just aren't being made anymore. And so I think a lot of people are turning here for some of the original filmmaking that's happening right now, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, it's the one genre that's kind of in a, um, other than superhero movies, obviously, that's kind of flourishing right now in, in the public's eye. Like, I don't, I don't, I can't, I'm sure there are other examples, but I can't think of any other genre that's doing as well right now, other than, of course, superhero movies and like, I don't know what we can kind of broadly call the Disney film. Yeah. Because I mean, the live action remakes, like they all do well, but they're all just kind of the, the Disney film. Right. literally and figuratively scorsese's theme park films yes <laughs> <laughs> well now there's that avengers cruise ship thing that got unveiled did you see that yes oh. i did yeah wow. <laughs> so martin scorsese is right about everything all the time and <laughs> we are fools to doubt his word yeah. um i was gonna say but scorsese never made a horror movie but he's actually made two with cape beer and shutter island but right. i don't think either of us are talking about shutter island this week no no we're um yeah well let's should we just get her started sure Dan, thing you want to take our first pick yeah so it's talking about the modern horror renaissance there's a lot of great stuff but for me there's one film that's the peak of this moment in terms of quality and in terms of being genuinely scary but also being like this ambitious really well-made thoughtful film that you kind of go back to again and again and again and that's the witch um as a sidebar, some people might argue instead for Robert Eggers' film, uh, The Lighthouse, which is pretty much just as good, but is almost so much its own thing that I'm like, well, it's kind of horror. I don't know what it is, really. But The Witch is definitely horror. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, it concerns a, I'm just going to double check which century, 1630s New England settler family living on their own, um, trying to uh, make their way. And the setting so. itself is amazing. Like, yes. like just I, I love that it's set at that time. And and the the effort that goes into like authentic speech. I because that's the other thing. Like it, it's and speaking of your point earlier about the lack of like uh horror being the place where you can get smaller budget, mid-budget films, the fact that we don't get a ton of like production value in terms of the setting, we get enough, but really what re sells it is the dialogue and yeah, the performers. That's true. They feel so authentic, which I can't imagine because some of those cast members are really young. Like, how do you do that? I not. I, I don't understand how one does that. Um, but the moment I'm highlighting involves the two children, and well, there's many children, but the main daughter, who's played by Anya Taylor Joy Thompson and uh, Thomason, thanks probably how it's pronounced, and uh, 
her younger brother, whose name I already forgot, and I just looked it up. Caleb. Caleb, yes. And it's just this really small, I remember noting it in the theaters, it's this quick moment between the two where they're outside together and she's sort of sitting down so that she can be below him because he's much shorter. And there's a point of view shot from him looking down at her and specifically focusing on her cleavage. And it doesn't last long, but it definitely lasts long enough for you to be like, that's not an appropriate way for a boy to look at his sister. And I really love it for two reasons. One, it's such a subtle way, because this happens pretty early in the film, or like within the first half hour, I think, to signal the ways in which living in isolation as a family is breaking down these people in unhealthy ways, where part of the reason he's looking at her like this is because he's getting old enough to start looking at people that way, and there's nobody around but his family. So it's that's naturally who he's going to have to look at. And because even the his, there's almost a reaction shot too, where you can tell he's like not totally comfortable with, or not totally sure what to do with what he's feeling or taking in. So again, very subtle, no dialogue, and it doesn't even become explicitly a main part of the text, but I think it's a wonderful way to visually indicate something about this family. And the other reason I really like it is because of the theme that emerges in the film about the way Thomason is valued and devalued and where she's seen as being valuable by her whole family. So by the end when she, and I guess I'll avoid spoilers because it's a recent enough film, but the direction that her life ends up taking, I've seen that ending read a lot of different ways. There's a lot of people who read it as a good for her ending in the same way that there are people who read like Midsummer and Gone Girl that way, where it's like, that's not what that movie's about, but you know, but to me, like, it's more, you can see it being a cathartic moment for her, that ending, but it's only cathartic in the context of the way she's treated and viewed by everybody else, that she is sort of seen in a, in less human terms, um, and as something like a, a, a product for voyeuristic consumption and for satisfying someone else's voyeuristic desire. So at the end, that ending is a hopeful one in a way, but only in the context of where she was at before. And if you take what actually happens on its own merits, it's also still really quite dark and uh, depressing. So yeah, I like this moment for one, foreshadowing that, but two, for also just showing the, and something that becomes more pronounced in other ways as the film goes on and the family really start to claw at each other, the ways this family have become so dysfunctional by virtue of being these weird uh, outsiders who have no connection really to anybody else. So, uh, so that's my moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good moment. It's, I, I kind of see that as, well, there, I mean, there's lots of conflict in the movie, especially with the father, right? Cause he's very strict and very demanding, but this provides an extra layer of conflict within the family as well. And just with the story, because when you see that scene, you're like, like that's you know, something is going to happen with this right like they're not just going to show this and leave it and so there's definitely going to be something going on with with the brother and the sister and how that plays out is pretty intriguing as well mm-hmm. yeah. any thoughts brooke yeah no i i think that's an interesting moment because i i also remember seeing it in the theater and being like oh okay that's that's where this movie is going (laughs) um but yeah no I think it it does add an interesting layer because at the beginning 
of the movie, you also kind of see them being shunned by the town, like they are being exiled, essentially, and then being put into this really isolated scenery and setting. I mean, that to me is just kind of crazy on its own, like trying to film that in the middle of nowhere and just like this prairie, essentially land. I just think it's so cool. And then, in Canada, I think it was. Yeah, shot. I think so. Oh, really? Probably close. No, it's closer to our neck of the woods, I think, than Yen's. Was it? I think so. Yeah, we don't have forests. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. The word well, plains I'm, triggered I'm me to thinking yeah. of you. Yeah, but like. Then I'm like, no, yeah, nothing else. <laughs> no, just I, I think it's interesting. And I mean, I think there is kind of a little bit of like a subtle mystery to why they were exiled too at the beginning. So you're kind of like, oh, like does this have anything else to do with like mm-hmm. their sinning quote unquote or um... yeah I mean you're trying to figure out the family dynamic still at this point yeah so well and that's yeah. something too I like that you brought up that they're they are cast out from the beginning too and it's it's somewhat like mutual but it's also somewhat someone else is imposing it on them and it's just another layer of like these kids did not choose this live these lives for themselves no yeah and uh again it's another interesting way of showing the way that like the dad in particular his choices are uh bringing ruin to his kids and messing them up and then it's bad news because oh there's a witch in the woods and that's <laughs> that's gonna make things a lot more complicated yeah well i mean religious oppression is a pretty big aspect of this movie and when i saw that scene i kind of saw it as speaking out against these oppressive ideas because you're not going to be able to keep these kind of urges at bay. Right. And you can either manage them or do your best to just shout them down and try to ignore the fact that, you know, this kid is growing up and you you can't hold them back. Right. It's like, the, the tighter you grip something, the easier it's going to be to slip through your fingers. That's a Star, mm-hmm. Star Wars quote, say, I just realized. I guess it's apt. I honestly forgot that until I was saying it. I'm like, that's, that's Star Wars, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> All star systems will slip through your fingers. That's one of the lines she says in a kind of British accent. Um, good stuff. Yeah, I mean... That's something else too, because it, it, the end up the way that Caleb is lured in by the witch too is also through her sexuality. So it is like it directly is addressing this notion of like because these things are being repressed, the consequences of that manifest itself in a more literal and like traditionally scary way of like an evil witch who attacked you in the forest. But you right. see it here too, and in a way, it like you know, rewatching the film, that scene where the witch takes Caleb, it's a creepy, well done scene, but it's not as creepy as just. Caleb looking at his sister that way because that's like that's such a much more simple and like real and uncomfortable like idea and the more you unpack why he's at this point the more depressing and uh and horrific it becomes especially thinking like the specific scenario they're in is a pretty unique one it's not like a one-to-one allegory for necessarily a lot of things happening today but certainly um a lot of the sort of uh, religious um, pressures to not sin and not engage sexually or do this and that, like those things do still exist. So in a bizarre way, it's not like the same necessarily as the Caleb situation, but I feel like there's still a lot of like relevance and weight to that moment. And even in a modern context. 
like what happens if there's no healthy outlet right mm -hmm. that's exactly that's what it's looking at i still haven't brought myself to rewatch this i've only ever seen it once i loved mm -hmm. it but there was something about my mindset at the time because things were happening. I was kind of, my worldview was changing in a way. And for some reason, this just struck a chord with, with where my mind was at. And it really affected me to the point where mm -hmm. I almost shut it off at the ending. Cause I didn't want to know what was going to end up happening. <laughs> and actually I did. Wow. I was like, no, I'm not watching the ending. I came back later because I was like, I got to know what happens, but <laughs> yeah. it was uh, like, yeah that movie really had an impact on me and I still haven't because I loved it and I really want to watch it again but I just haven't brought myself to do so nice it's a very well-made movie I realized fairly recently looking at my letterbox I have this movie logged twice and both times only at four and a half stars and I have no idea why it's not five and it like this is a lot less profound than like my worldview was changing and mine's like my letterbox stats but I am genuinely like, why did I not? Because I think back, like it was, I think it was my second favorite movie the year it came out. And in a year that I thought had a lot of really awesome movies, um, I've the whole, since it's come out, sort of cited it as like the, one of the best films of the last 10 years. And then I look at my letterbox and I'm like four and a half. I gave I Hereditary five and this is not as good as Hereditary or her, rather Hereditary is not as good as The Witch. Right. Yeah. I do that all the time. I just, I'm like, you're reluctant to give it that top score because you're like, well, I, I try to be selective with it. I'm like, mm -hmm. what gets a five out of five? And then later I'm like, why didn't I? It's so good. I almost only gave Dune four out of five at first, but now it's up to four and a half. Anytime you see a movie in theaters twice in the span of three days, it's probably, it's probably pretty good. That's a five banger for me. <laughs> <laughs> we will see. I will, it's very possible it'll go up to a five when part two comes out. Yeah. Now the part two is coming out. Yes. Heck yeah. So right. uh, yeah, Brooke? that's my moment. Yeah. Brooke, right. what do you want to, what's your pick? Um, well, I guess I'll start with my pick that was an earlier one. Um, so my, one of my first, or I guess one of my moments was uh, 2001, The Ring uh, from, or Gore Verbinski is the one who directed it. Um, obvious. Well, I don't know if everybody would know this, but it's a, essentially like a, a remake of uh, the Japanese horror film Ringu, uh, which is also based on a novel, I think. Uh, but the scene I want to talk about is the opening scene because, sorry, yeah, that's our- I don't know if you can hear our cat running yeah. around in the background. He's doing parkour right now. Um, <laughs> uh, Wally, what are you doing? Don't um, worry about him, he's fine. Uh, so I just- I don't know there's not really I guess for me this scene is just really interesting because it sets up a lot of expectations in terms of like an American horror film and kind of flip-flops back and forth to like wait is this actually happening essentially um which scene is this the beginning scene the opening yeah yeah sorry the opening scene um so what's happening is these two girls, it's like a slumber party, they're home alone in their parents' house. And they're talking about uh, this tape. And if you watch the tape, then you'll get a phone call. Um, and, it'll, and it'll tell you seven days, you have seven days to live. Um, and 
you know, at first you're like, oh, like that's going to be the, the moment like, oh, okay. Like one of these girls has watched the tape. So it plays into that, that one girl's like, oh my God, like, how did you know about the tape? And she's like, well, it's just a story. And then she, and then she, the other girl's like trying to freak her out. And then turns out she's like, oh, I'm just kidding. And so you're like, oh, okay. Like, is this not actually what's going to happen? And then all of a sudden the phone rings and then the one girl starts really freaking out. And she's like, oh, there really is a tape. And so there, and then there's no dialogue after that until they pick up the phone, they realize it's the mom and so on and so forth. It kind of uh, gets climactic to the point where like, yes, the, the one girl is um, murdered. We find out, we don't know really how or why, um, or well, we do know why, but uh we don't see it though no we don't see it um and I think it's just an interesting scene in terms because like I feel like in the Japanese one I haven't watched in a while but in Ringu it really just kind of builds to like oh there's this tape and then it just goes right into the girl being killed like um, it's being built up in terms of like suspense but in the Verbinski version I feel like there is a flip-flop back and forth of like oh is this actually gonna happen or is this is he just trying to trick us right now into thinking oh wally um (laughs) is he tricking us into thinking oh okay uh this isn't actually gonna happen there's this because we're expecting it to happen so then he's not gonna show it to us Uh, so i think i don't know i just it's something that i kind of like a lot or and when I watched it again, like I just rewatched that scene last night. I was like, man, this is really cool. Cause like I, a lot of times it just really sets up that expectation and then executes it. But this one, I found there was a lot of back and forth. And so it does kind of teeter the mind to think, oh, okay, it's not going to happen. Um, and then later on, they kind of do the same thing about show, like revealing her body um the girl that ends up passing away and it's interesting because they just like all of a sudden flash to her corpse and I think as the audience you're not ready to see it but it just kind of happens and uh I don't know I just like the way that it's executed and there's little moments like this too throughout the movie that uh Verbinski plays with so which is different than uh the Japanese Ringo as well so I don't know. That's just something that I thought about. Good pick. Yeah. yeah, I like the way that you talk about it modulates your expectations and he keeps, he sort of zigs when you expect him to zag in small ways, but it throws you off from the scare. And especially the way the corpse reveal happens because it feels like, okay, opening scene of the movie, you're setting up the tone, the atmosphere. You're going to have some sort of like reveal of, you know, what she looks like, what happens to her. And you don't actually see what happens. You know, she dies. Yeah but you don't see her. And then later, is it at the wake they show it? Well, they don't even show her, you, they don't even show the audience that image until it's like after the wake or during the wake, but later on. And mm-hmm. the, the mom is talking to her sister, who's the detective, who's Naomi Watts. And uh, it's just a casual conversation. And all of a sudden it flashes and it's her opening up the closet and her daughter's there and her in like this like 
statuesque corpse, like horrific figure um, which you're not really expecting because you're kind of expecting to see it because I think there's a casket there, but they won't open the casket. Mm, that's um, right. And so you're kind of <laughs> anticipating for like maybe the kid to open up the casket or like maybe they're just not going to show you at all. Which is interesting to do it with the closet too, because it gives you the visual of something being opened. So it's like yeah. you see it at the right. at the funeral, but you don't, or at the wake rather. Um, yeah, and I like too that uh, like it throws you off from where the scare is. So when it does happen, it hits you more than it would have otherwise. She's like, oh, I guess we're not, oh, never mind. There it is. Yeah. Um, for context. That's, that's a really good go point ahead, about how, like the style of how he sets that style. Because when you think of The Ring, you think that it's an, just an unsettling, creepy movie in that way. And even if you think of like The Ring Girl, that's so famous now, and the way that her jerky movements are so unnatural, yeah, this sense of filming the movie matches that really well. And I think probably builds that reputation. Mm -hmm. When things are unexpected in the way he does it. That's a good point. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very, very well-made film. I think it's still Verbinski's best movie, personally. Um, I haven't seen Mouse Hunt in a while, so that might be <laughs> <laughs> in a really long time. <laughs> But I like it more than any of the Pirates movies. Uh, I like it more than A Cure for Wellness, although A Cure for Wellness is pretty good. Um, that's an underrated horror from the last couple of years. I really like that one, though. Yeah. And I like it more than Rango, but Rango's fun. Yeah. <laughs> the film that bravely asks, what if Johnny Depp was a lizard? Makes you think. Yeah. <laughs> more yeah, movies need to ask that. Really? <laughs> <laughs> what if actor was animal? I guess it's like most kids' movies at this point, but... <laughs> Rango's better because it's a weird looking lizard. It is. It's a weird actor too. That's true. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, you know, I think you guys did a better job of articulating the uh, more artistic language for what I well, was Well, that's why we host say. the show. We're yeah, all no, pros at this. <laughs> I, it's, well, it's also because I woke up half an hour ago or whatever. So hey. <laughs> they don't need to know that. No. People don't need to know how ramshackle this organization is. No, no, no. <laughs> I just, my brain doesn't function until like three hours after I wake up. So, but yes, no, I think style is a big part of that movie, which really makes it work. And yeah, I don't know. I just resonate with that movie a lot. So. And I like that you mentioned too, that it's like the slumber party aspect, because one of the things that I really like about this movie is that the hero is not 15 played by a 27 year old actor. It's Naomi Watts. Who's uh, you know, one, an adult, and two, one of the best actors of her generation. So you really, like, it feels like a more mature story, but I like this opening still gives you the more teen aspect right. of that story. So you get a glimpse of, like, the Ring movie that could have been, and it's it's fun. And it sets the tone perfectly for, like, the urban legendness of, like, I hear there's this tape that if you watch it, you know, that it starts with a slumber party and them telling that story in universe. Um, yeah, it kind of sets up the movie in certain ways and also just like in terms of how the movie's going to play out like with this reversal of expectations as well too like it, it's essentially foreshadowing what's going to happen i mean i won't get into spoilers but dan said i <laughs> it was okay but I, the movie's 20 years old <laughs> <laughs> i st i don't want to spoil it okay no the first time watching that i actually was like it's pretty shook. It's uh, great. Yeah. I, mean, I actually, again, like The Witch, I haven't seen this since the first time I saw it, which was really, in, which was in theaters. So I was quite a bit younger. Wow. And 
that would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah. How much, uh, how much should I reveal about my wimpiness? <laughs> well, I want to say friend of the show, Michael, who's been on the bond episode and the Oscars and a couple other ones uh, has mentioned in his letterbox review. I hope he's okay with me revealing this, that uh, when he first saw this movie in theaters, he thought it was one of the scariest films he'd ever seen. Well, I didn't watch the scene where they show the tape. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm. Of the That's urban the legend. best part. <laughs> I was such a sucker for that kind of stuff. I was like, what? You just been building me up this whole movie to not watch this tape. And now you're going to show me the tape. I'm like, no, nope, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not watching it. I feel like Homer Simpson right now when uh, he's talking to the one guy who's like, I was the one who convinced Paul McCartney to leave the Beatles. Like, you idiot. He was the most talented <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's fair. I mean, the tape is like, it's so good and i don't remember how similar it is to the tape in the japanese version um i think it's pretty similar yeah but i just you're right though it's it's so compelling to the point where like kind of like you were saying Ian, it was so scary when i was a kid watching scary movie three when they're showing the parody version i was scared i was like 10 years old and i didn't want to watch that scene i was like i'm out nope to be fair they give that version of samara a chainsaw and like what could be scarier than samara chain samara <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to watch the clip of the like the video on screen and it was like literally a butt sitting on a toilet and I was like yeah no I'm out done the second week in a row scary movie three has been brought up on this podcast that's amazing <laughs> we're gonna have to do like a wash party or something oh man I want to say they're all on Netflix in Canada so yeah. Ian you and I are blessed we can watch them all there we go yeah. uh, well that was a good pick yeah, yeah. it's set up Mine, uh, mine is actually pretty similar to the one I want to talk about in the sense that it's also like I also picked the beginning of a movie and to describe how it sets up expectations. <laughs> so we're in sync there, I guess. Yeah. Uh, my movie is It Follows from 2015. And it's one of my favorite horror movies of the last few years. I just really, really love it. And so I want to talk about the beginning of the movie, which is kind of like you know, like the X-Files pre-credit scenes sort of for this movie. So it's, uh, it basically follows this girl who runs out, who's basically on the run. She goes to a beach. And then just before that movie starts in real, it's, you just see this flash of her death scene. And so the girl is basically on a beach right in front of the water. She's she's lying there dead her eyes are wide open her neck is twisted in a way that just seems a little bit too far and her body is just mangled like her her legs are snapped in in weird directions and that one image i think does so much to set up the whole movie because there's there's lots going on there <clears throat> with that one image so the first thing is that when she runs out of her house, she's basically wearing this sheer nightgown, basically, right? And, um, well, I'll just say it, it's, it's sexy, right? And this sets it up because the movie itself is very sexual in nature, right? The whole premise is based around that. So it kind of sets up that aspect of it. The fact that she's sitting at a beach is weird. And you're immediately asking yourself, why did she go there? she's scared obviously why is she there at this beach at the end of our land basically and when you watch the movie it makes sense because there the killer is basically 
or whatever it is, is relentlessly chasing them, right? And it also just sets up the fact that this is something, has to be something preternatural because there's no way just a regular person can, can kill someone in that manner and leave the body that destroyed. And so it sets up these very interesting expectations for the movie that leaves that leaves the audience wondering what are we in for and what is now going to happen right what killed this girl and so this mystery of what's this movie going to be about is set up really well i think and ends up paying off in all those regards yeah um it's an awesome scene i remember like it's a great i remember seeing it in the theater and just being like ooh this will be pretty good because this was also like right before I guess it was at the cusp of the horror renaissance as it were because like the last couple years before had been like kind of weak I mean there'd been a couple of exceptions but a lot of the stuff like the Babadook was the year before but or actually maybe it was the same or I think it was the year before for everybody except Canada we got it really late compared to the rest of the world but um so it was exciting to see that opening and be like this actually might be really good um but also I like the point you bring up about like the flashing forward to her death. Cause it makes me think of this theme of like inevitability, which fits perfectly with the way that this thing operates where like, it's, it's essentially like the most distilled form of like the slasher villain where it's like, they don't run. Right. They just slowly stalk along and eventually they'll get you. No matter what you do, like eventually they'll get you. And I think that's such a good way of like, just, introducing that idea the way that it kind of jumps ahead to show you that um as if it's a foregone conclusion that this is what the end will be even if certain characters maybe do their best to avoid that fate right. so mm -hmm. sense of impending doom mm -hmm. yeah which is what makes this movie so fantastic in my sense because you really feel that impending doom like you said mm -hmm. this is one that i actually only think i've seen once but I, it's kind of like what you were saying, Ian, like, I really like the movie, but I've just, I've never gone back to rewatch it. Maybe it's just because I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I'll see a different one on Netflix or something. I'll just be like, oh, I haven't seen this one, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm like totally guilty of. I have a total squirrel brain, but it's definitely one that's on my radar to be rewatched. So I like too, that you bring up the the way that it introduces the theme of sexuality before it introduces it in the plot. Um, because, sorry, cat just jumped up on our chair. Um, they're usually not this rambunctious, but they're not used to both of us sitting in on a Zoom call at the same time. So it's like, what is happening? Um, but the fact that like, there's kind of, you can really broadly define modern horror filmmaking in sort of North America right now as like the indie A24 brand type stuff even stuff that's not a 24 produced has the certain uh you know veneer of that uh label and the hyper one-to-one -one allegory mainstream horror stuff that like jordan peele's really kind of the driving force of that but how this movie is kind of both because on the one hand it's like a smaller scale um feels more like an indie movie like even the yeah, pacing yeah, yeah, is, is slower it, it's it's the characters are less, I don't want to say less defined, but they're less defined in like Hollywood ways of like really simplistic, like this is their thing. They're just kind of people. Right. Um, but at the same time, it has this really one-to-one -one allegory of like, 
if you have sex, you pass along this thing and it follows you when you die. And it's like, there's ways you can kind of read that, but it, on the one level, it's like a clear allegory for maybe like um, STIs on another level for the social stigma that comes with young people engaging with their sexuality. But because um, it kind of ends up beating a lot of what's come to the punch in terms of like these really direct allegories. Like I think about how Get Out is clearly a metaphor for the ways in which uh Black men, Black people, Black men in particular are fetishized even while their lives are devalued. Us is a little bit more obtuse, but it's very much clearly making statements about hierarchical caste systems in America. Um, and then The Invisible Man, probably one of the most on the nose, very clearly about being in a abusive relationship and being gaslit by your partner, which you can imagine when they're invisible, that's a lot worse. Um, so... <laughs> I, I just think it's interesting, like looking back, because I wouldn't have thought about it at the time, but looking back, it's kind of the most, and I can't say it had direct influence, I don't know, but it's one of the most emblematic horror movies of the era. And you could argue started the sort of wave we're in, started both waves we're in. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And I think we see, though, with the last couple of picks is that horrors are really good at setting up their premise <laughs> or the really good horrors. Mm -hmm. I also think of Scream with the Drew Barrymore beginning, which is yes, amazing. But yeah. best scene in the film, arguably. Yeah. <clears throat> um, on a filmmaking level, I think it is. Although some of the later stuff with Matthew Lillard is just wow, it's so fun. Um, yeah, there is like a rich trend in horror. I mean, Halloween, the original, of course, yeah. has got the maybe the one of the best opening scenes to any movie in terms of just like bringing you in terrifying you and making you ask like i'd like to know more so yeah i mean it's, maybe there's something too there with the way that like horror loans itself to uh short films but also like anthology films like this idea of like really small horror premises that maybe don't in this case obviously they are feature films but like shrinking that idea down to its smallest simplest form and building a little story around it because you could argue this it doesn't quite function the opening scene as it follows, I think, as its own short film, but it's pretty close. Mm -hmm. And you can yeah. imagine with a little bit of tweaks here and there, it could. That's right. Yeah. So. All right. Well, you brought up Halloween. Should mm. we continue on that thread? Yeah, I suppose so. <clears throat> so <clears throat> this is gonna this is gonna be kind of a long rambly road to get to like <laughs> my I don't even really necessarily have a scene. I don't know. I just <laughs> been thinking about these films a lot. So I, for anyone who doesn't know, Rob Zombie's Halloween remake and its sequel were released in 2007 and 2009, made pretty decent money, but were critically kind of panned. And especially the second one, which was goes really far into Rob Zombie weirdness um, and were seen as just like, oh, remakes suck, slashers suck. And I'd seen them both twice before and and more mixed on them. I think they have some really compelling ideas and I thought I had, they had some really compelling ideas, but they were also like botched in places and not totally fulfilling and not totally working. And I was kind of comfortable with that being where I had them. But in the last couple of years and in the last couple like months in particular, there's this small but very vocal contingent of people on Twitter and on Letterboxd who really like these movies. And Halloween 2 in particular, they love. Like this is either the second best one of the series or maybe the best one. Maybe it's even better than John Carpenter's original. And I was kind of watching this from afar like, huh. Because I remember liking aspects of these movies, 
but I thought them also really frustrating. And I remember, well, and I, I like Rob Zombie generally as a filmmaker. I really like The Devil's Rejects and The Lords of Salem. And I'm a fan of his music. You can't see what I'm wearing, which was total coincidence. I just put on the shirt and I was like, wait a minute, I'm talking about Rob Zombie today. So I really want to like his, his movies. So last night I thought, okay, I'm going to watch them again and try to force feed them into being movies I like. And I kind of did. <laughs> I kind of like them now. And like Halloween one is still the worst one I think of the two because it's still burdened by being a remake of one of the greatest movies ever so when it the parts of the film where it's doing its own thing even when it doesn't totally work are pretty interesting and like uh, interesting ideas to pursue and you can feel zombies personal touch on them but then it has to be Halloween still Michael Myers needs to stalk the babysitters and you need to have those beats and then it becomes kind of boring especially the sort of final chase but then Halloween 2 is just like this, it's basically Rob Zombie making a weirdo Lords of Salem-esque Rob Zombie movie, but also Michael Myers is in it. And that's not even facetious because Michael Myers is like the least important element of that second movie. It's really about Laurie. And this is what I kind of wanted to zone in on for my moment is her relationship to her friend Annie. Annie is in the original Halloween as well. She's one of the babysitters that gets killed by Michael Myers. In Rob Zombie's Halloween, however, she survives. She's attacked and she gets messed up very badly, but she lives. And in Halloween 2, uh, Lori, whose adopted parents have been killed, she's now living with Annie and her dad, who's the uh, sheriff of uh, Haddonfield, who's played by Brad Dorff. And as a side note, it's so nice to see Brad Dorff in a movie where he's just like a nice guy. <laughs> he's not Grima Wormtongue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and he's really good in it too. Like he's really likable. But um, what I like is specifically the way that this film deals with trauma, which right now is kind of like a lot of horror movies are about trauma. And there's like very famously, there's a super cut going around Twitter of Jamie Lee Curtis in interviews in all these different interviews saying the exact same line about Halloween 2018, it's about trauma with like the same inflection, same delivery. Right. And I like the 2018 Halloween and it's about trauma, but it, I would argue it's kind of a simplistic and in some ways fantasy version of like, what if a traumatic event made you hoard a lot of guns and be a hardcore survivalist? And then right. you use that knowledge to defeat your enemy. And it's like, okay, you know, that's fine. But how, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 is like, what if a traumatic event severed your ability to connect with the people in your life and process your emotions properly? Which is a more difficult question. You can't yeah. solve that one with like, and then she killed Michael Myers. So Lori in this film is really struggling with herself. She's seeing, and she's in therapy and having panic attacks, having night terrors, breaking down in upsetting ways. And in the past, I used to view this as like, this is a really interesting idea, but I don't think Rob Zombie's right for it because he doesn't know how to write characters in ways other than screaming at each other. And I think there's still an element of that now, but rewatching it last night, I was like, this actually feels a lot more real and challenging and uncomfortable than most depictions of traumatic characters where like there are times where she is annoying, where she's screaming and can't control herself. And you do just want to say, why can't you just be normal? But it's like, that's what like dealing with somebody who's struggling with mental health stuff can be like where it's it's easy to say wanting to be the good person and say the right things but 
it is frustrating too. And I really like the way that's articulated with Annie. One, because there's a scene where she says to Lori, hey, one day at a time. And at first it seems like it's going to be this nice message, like, thanks, I've got my friend with me. But then Lori gets really mad and starts saying, if I have to hear that expression one more F in time and, you know, is really upset. And then they, they start fighting. And one, I love that because it is one of those like cliche, nice things you're supposed to say to help somebody. But you can also imagine if you were going through that, it would be the most infuriating. Like, I don't want to take it one day at a time. I want to be better right now. Um, but what I really love about that is it how that colors the relationship she has with uh, Annie for the rest of the film, where you would expect in a normal film, oh, going through this traumatic event together brings them closer. Here it does the opposite where, and Lori says in one of her therapy sessions, every time I look at her and I see the scars on her face, it's a reminder. So just looking at her best friend is a triggering event for her. And she even mentions a thing of survival's guilt because she's like, I know it's my fault, which at this point, she doesn't know that Michael Myers is her brother yet. So that becomes compounded with later information we get. But um, yeah, so I mean, that was kind of a long road to get to a really simple point. But I just think one, I've really turned around on this movie. I still don't think it's perfect, but I've gone from being like, it's bad to like, it's actually pretty good. And in its best moments, it's really absorbing. Um, but I think it does a really mature and uh, ambitious job of handling the story. And because even thinking about other slasher films, when final girls who survive come back in subsequent films, there's rarely, even when it's like this hardship they've gone through, it's, that's kind of like a surface level. Here, this movie is really about um, what it would be like to experience that and how it would affect you emotionally. And even thinking about, you know, um, there's a review on Letterboxd from someone I think I'm friends with. I don't remember their name right now. I might look it up and add it when we post it because I think they have a line that gets to the core of this movie so well where they say, it's telling that when Michael Myers finally appears in Lori's life, we're less concerned about her physical safety and more concerned about what this is going to do to her mentally. And I think that's true. And I think that's brilliant. I can't think of like the only other horror movie that does a similar thing, I would say is like Halloween H2O, where, you know, Michael Myers is re that shot where Laurie's looking through the glass and he, she sees him for the first time since, you know, that night 20 years ago or whatever it was. But uh, this moment to me is, or rather the way this film frames it is actually a lot more, um, a lot more challenging and more of like a horror movie idea. So yeah, that's my pick. Yeah, that's very interesting. I've never, I haven't seen the Rob Zombie um, Halloweens, but as you're talking, like I'm, what, what I'm thinking is just kind of what you just mentioned about the final girl idea lends itself to exploring trauma, but usually they don't, or if they do, it's almost like, like I'm thinking Scream 2, right? where it's almost like an obligation to the filmmaker to touch on it, but they don't really want to dig into it. Whereas it sounds here mm -hmm. like, like Rob Zombie is all about, yeah, let's get into this, right? Let's make the movie about this. Yeah. And fully embracing that idea. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think the other thing rewatching Halloween 2 kind of last night really crystallized this for me is the reason most slasher movies don't do that is because it's not fun to do that. Mm -hmm. And as I was watching Halloween 2, I realized, I'm like, I think the reason I didn't like this movie before is on some level, it wasn't a good Halloween sequel. It wasn't Michael Myers stalking babysitters and, you know, gasping in shock. It's much more upsetting and uncomfortable. And like, there's 
a payoff late the, the final payoff to the Lori Annie storyline is genuinely really upsetting to watch and it's very intense and not just because it's violent it's certainly violent it is a Rob Zombie movie but it's like emotionally like this hurts man this sucks to see this be taken away from this character and ha- watch them deal with this and watch in some ways think about the consequences of their actions make this even more painful um, and even the way Michael Myers is portrayed, it's often been mocked this movie because Michael Myers doesn't really look like Michael Myers so much as he does a smelly hobo. He's got this long scraggly beard and this like dirty hood. A lot of the times we see him not wearing his mask. He's in the dark, so you can't really see his face, but it's like, that's not Michael Myers. Where's the gas station zip up and the, you know, William Shatner mask. And what I like about that rewatch, because at first I was like, yeah, why would he do this? This is barely a Halloween movie, but rewatching it, I'm like, this is perfect. Because at this point, it's not just that Michael Myers is like a joke who's been, you know, roundhouse kicked by Buster Rhymes out a window in Halloween Resurrection. But on some level, he's a character or an image you look at with a certain nostalgic fondness. It's like the alien. The alien's not really that scary anymore. It's scary in 1979. But at this point, like, you know so much about the character and it's like, oh, it's that design I love. That the alien by itself, like David in Prometheus and Alien Covenant is so much more frightening than the xenomorphs. And I like with this film, it's like, okay, Michael Myers, as is, is an like a, an, a visual that the audience will have a nostalgic fondness for. We need to take that away. We need to make him unsettling again. And I get why it wouldn't work for everybody. And I get why it took me a long time to come around to it. But I think it was a smart choice and a, and a brave one. So, yeah, Awesome. Brooke, what are your thoughts on these Halloween movies, the Rob Zombie ones? These movies are whack. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I do appreciate um, some of the changes he's made, or at least to try and make them a bit different. Um, I think Dan was telling me that, like, originally Rob Zombie wanted to make an origin story for Michael Myers. Well, specifically um, the, like, the therapy sessions between Dr. Loomis and young Michael. Oh, okay. Basically, like, the gap between Halloween's prologue and its main story. Yeah. But I kind of like the prologue stuff. Like, I find it interesting. And, like, I know maybe it's cliche to be, like, oh, like, it's interesting to hear the backstory of, like, a serial killer. But, like, I don't know, just the way he does it. And Malcolm McDowell is actually pretty good as mm-hmm. the Dr. Loomis. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's just kind of weird. Um, and I I didn't stay up to watch Halloween 2 with Dan last night. but That's fair. It was pretty late. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, all I remember from that movie, it feels like a fever dream. Like all I remember is Sherry Moon Zombie on a white horse in the middle of a field with fog. Yeah, and we didn't even Malcolm get into Mc- that. Yeah, <laughs> and Malcolm McDowell screaming. Um, mm-hmm. Weird Al Yankovic is in it at one point. Oh, that's amazing. As himself. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just like there. It's definitely, especially the second one. It's definitely not a traditional slasher mm-hmm. horror film to go kind of into the trauma bit but uh, i want to say i read a quote just on the wikipedia from the producer who like i think his name is like malik akkad and he has the rights to michael myers generally where he told rob zombie don't feel like you're constrained by any of the things we've typically constrained filmmakers with in this series like we want this to be yours which is wild because in the past he was very much like follow the formula um, but I guess, you know, by the time you get to 2009, you kind of need to shake things up. But it's like, there's these surreal dream sequences. Like Brooks mentioned this visual of, um, you know, Sherry Moon Zombie, who plays Michael's mom in the first film and, and in this one in flashbacks, who is just like this, like, like uh, ghostly white luminous figure who he has these visions of. And then Lori starts having visions of, and it's, 
I get why it wouldn't work for people because it's like that's not what Halloween is. She looks like Gandalf the White. She, like when he comes <laughs> out, glow, like that's actually yeah. what she looks like with the hair and everything. That's a good point. Which is the other thing. This movie looks amazing. Like there are moments where it's like ugly, gritty, you know, two thousands horror. But there are these like surreal and beautiful dream sequences that draw influence from like the silent era at points. And it's even like because even when I disliked the movie, I was like, I respect this a lot. Like I, I remember seeing Halloween twenty eighteen when it came out and being like, this is one of the best Halloween movies, which I don't think I feel like anymore. It's kind of, I've cooled on it a lot since. I still enjoy it, but it's like, it's a well-made film that delivers the sort of Halloween structure in a satisfying way. Rob Zombie's films don't do that. And I can totally see why people would hate them. Ian, I suspect you might hate them because they're so violent. (laughs) I kind of want you to watch them now just so we can talk about them. But um, I go in knowing that it's like, they're really... And they're not even really that gory so much as they are just like really take the violence and the horror of it seriously, which is also comforting if you watch it. Comforting is a weird way to phrase that. But in the context of like the series where by the time you get to some of the later Halloween movies, it's like all a joke to go back to that one or, or to go to the Rob Zombie ones where it's like for better or worse, one thing he definitely did do was bring this character back into a scary place where being confronted by Michaels is not something you want to see. It's not fun even when it happens in those movies. It's upsetting. Yeah, it's like hyper-stylized violence. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how I see it. Like, it's there is a lot of violence, but it's just done in a way that feels like kind of like, I don't, I don't know, like just like weird. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Like the, the film, it modulates between like a certain gritty violence and then these more dreamlike moments especially there's an extended bit in a hospital that ends up being a dream sequence that i used to really dislike because i'm like well the first several minutes of the film's a dream so it doesn't matter now i actually think it's brilliant i won't go into why but it starts there's like moments that feel like really gritty horror but then there's these like splashes of like that are foreshadowing that she's dreaming that are just like these weird visuals like there's one where she i think she's in like a, a dumpster or something trying to escape michael and it's like full of corpses and there's this like dark red light there and it's 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 a subtle indicator well subtle maybe isn't the right word but it's like an indicator like this is not real so even though we're not going to reveal it's a dream for another like five or ten minutes you should know by now that um and the way that the film is kind of about melding those two worlds so that it becomes less and less easy to parse them and understand when one character's fantasy begins and ends so interesting so yeah, the, the weirdos at film Twitter broke me down and now I agree with them. <laughs> if I come back on the show singing the praises of Miami Vice, you'll know that I'm, I'm truly gone. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, there we go. Halloween 2. I guess maybe I should try to check out those movies. We'll see. I mean, I, I'm, I'm torn because on the one hand, knowing your sensibilities, I feel like they'd be really... Yeah. That's I don't know I though. Like, the first film like also opens on Kiss... And it's just awesome. Like the first shot is the Myers home in the seventies and it's God of Thunder on the soundtrack, just blasting (laughs) through. It's like, this is perfect. So, and then Halloween two has a new wave of British heavy metal band diamond head on the radio. At one point, I don't know what radio station in 2009 is going to be playing diamond head, but maybe I need to move to Haddonfield (laughs) because that's awesome. Oh man. Um, Brooke, your next pick excites me because I I like the scene a lot so yeah um, take her away 
yeah so um yeah this was an interesting one because i I was actually having a hard time thinking of another movie I wanted to talk about in terms of like modern horror. And so I was kind of going through letterbox and like their horror genres, which sometimes can be loose. And I think that some might agree my pick is kind of loose in terms of horror, but I would argue otherwise. Um, and Annihilation came up and uh, I can't remember how many years ago it was. It wasn't 2018 2018 okay so not too long ago like three yeah three years ago um and you know I remember Dan coming home from the theater after seeing it because we didn't really think much about it and then he comes home and he's like you really need to see this movie and I was like okay and you know Dan knows I really like suspenseful thriller-esque horror films she's always down for a horror film yeah (laughs) yeah and I also like sci-fi I'm also a big sci-fi fan so um, I went, I can't remember how we watched it. If we did go to the theater to see it, we did. Okay. Yep. And yeah, I absolutely loved this movie. Um, uh, for those who don't know what it's about, Annihilation is essentially um, where this uh, these uh, scientists, a team of scientists go into uh, what they call the shimmer, which is like essentially this uh, radioactive area that's um, spreading uh, covering more and more space in this one area of the world i can't remember where exactly um in the jungle somewhere it's not in the jungle it creates a jungle the shimmer in the oh environment right itself. right right right. okay yeah, i want to so. say it's in like portland oregon or something yeah somewhere somewhere kind of near the coast and uh they're not really sure why it's expanding and what happens is they've sent in teams beforehand and none of them have come out and they're not really sure why they have no communication with people that go in um and yeah all they know is that it's just this area that has some sort of uh, effect that essentially it looks almost like a big bubble when and there is like a barrier so once you go in nobody sees them nobody can communicate with them and that's it and I love that their solution to that is, well, let's just send in more people. Yeah, just keep sending in more people. It's fine. Zap Brannigan logic. Knowing the killbots had a set limit, I sent wave after wave of my own men at them. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just, I think this movie has a really good, like, slow, uh, dark atmosphere. And, I I definitely think it leans on horror a lot because there are definitely graphic images that show up and uh, it deals a lot with tensions between characters and their backstories. Um, and yeah, it just, it all wo- like weaves together really nicely in terms of like sci-fi horror, I think. And so the moment I want to talk about is um, at this one point, when these the expedition team arrives at this essentially abandoned village where the shimmer had come across and expanded into this uh, village or town and so basically it looked it was abandoned because it's inside um and there's a bunch of houses so they take camp in one of these houses so a little bit of a disclaimer at this at this point um the 
he left me. Um, at this point, he, um, sorry, at this point in the story, um, one of, at least one of the ex, um, scientists has passed away. Um, one of them uh, was taken, they were on guard at this one post and uh, essentially they were attacked by what looks like a bear. And one of the uh, scientists had been taken away. She had been dragged, uh, dragged away by the bear. And the other scientists eventually the next day go looking for her. And uh, the main character, Natalie Portman, ends up finding her body in shambles. They don't really show it. Um, they kind of show like her, I think her feet and like her boots and stuff. So we know that she's found a body of sorts. Um, and then she goes back and confirms with the team that she's found her friend and scientist and that's that. So then they keep moving, they get to this cabin or this house, this abandoned house and tensions are high. Cause at this point they're starting to realize that the shimmer is affecting um, their DNA in some sort of way. It's starting to mutate um, where people feel um, they're starting to become almost a part of the environment that they're living in. In I guess, plain speaking, it's kind of a bit more complicated than that. Um, but also the characters are on edge with each other because they, um, it also affects their brain in a certain way and certain characters become more paranoid and there's this, uh, uh, I guess, conflict between some of the characters and like uh, not telling them certain things without getting too much into the, to it and there's secrets being held. And so anyways, they're at the house. Uh, things aren't going super great between them. And eventually what happens is they can hear, uh, all of a sudden it gets quiet and they hear the screams of their, the scientist that was dragged away by the bear. And so the one person who's not totally there and is being a little aggressive, she goes, oh, like she's calling out her name, like, oh my gosh, like she's here. And so Natalie Portman's character is like, don't go out there, like, cause they're in the house. And she's like, don't go out there. I don't like don't do it and she keeps hearing the the screams of the scientists and so anyways long story short I'm pretty sure she goes out there and then comes back and is being thrown back in and she's like covered in blood and wounds and as um this is kind of revealed this the bear or this animal that's been mutated comes in and you can kind of see it's like skeleton too. Like it's very well detailed. This animal comes in and clearly is about to attack these other people. Um, just kind of walks in and the characters are obviously like, okay, so don't move. They're all not moving because they're thinking that if they start to attack or if they're going to, um, if they're gonna move in any sort of way, it's gonna trigger the animal to then attack them. So they stop moving. And as the the bear-esque animal, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, the bear is probably the closest yeah. approximation. Yeah, the bear. The bear. <laughs> yeah, the bear, as the bear turns, you can see it's, it's starting to make a noise, like a call. And as it makes its noise, it's 
actually replicating the sound of the scientist that it has killed. So it's not actually the scientist, it's the animal that's creating this call. And it's, I think it has to do with the, the DNA and interweaving with each other and also using it essentially as um, like a, a technique to lure in its prey, um, all kind of being woven together. And I just, when I saw that in the theater, I would, I genuinely got shivers down my back because what kind of animal is able to replicate human screams like that? And in a way that like is kind of interwoven with like a bear calling out, like roaring essentially. Um, and in a way that like there's nothing, there's no other sound really going on. It's just that one call or sound that's being presented to you while the, all these characters are realizing that's not our friend. This is an animal that has essentially merged its DNA with the girl. And the last thing that it was able to replicate or to latch onto was this woman's screams before she died. And all these, and like the realization from the characters and the way that they just kind of like are horrified by it, it really affects you. And I just, for me, that was a big, well, I mean, it's supposed to be a little moment and it technically is a little moment, but for me, that was like, wow, this movie really sells me. And it brings me into that world of like the, the uncanny and the craziness of the situation they're in. So anyways, yeah, that's. Yeah. That's what I thought of. That's, awesome, Nick. That's great. That bear is, I'm with you. That is terrifying. Yeah. And like, it's just the image of the bear itself is horrifying, but juxtaposing it with that scream that it should not be making. Yeah. Yeah, that is nightmare stuff. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And it's hearing fantastic. the scream. Yeah. And like hearing that scream beforehand and not putting two and two together. But as soon as you see the animal, you're like, oh, I see. I see what's happening. And the realization is just like totally like earth shattering. I was like, oh my God, no, why? The fact too that the sounds like it's really distorted. Like it's it's clearly oh. the other scientists scream, but it feels strained and manipulated. And it's yeah. also intermingling with an animal's sounds. Mm -hmm. And I like that you mentioned the sort of the horror of these things merging. Cause you can imagine for this bear, like it doesn't know what's happening. It was just a bear living in the woods. And now it's, you know, DNA is being mutated and crossed like it's it kind of reminds me of and this is a movie I have on the brain lately but David Cronenberg's The Fly where it's like it's a scary thing to be confronted with as an outsider the monster but from an insider's perspective it's like the horror of like what is happening and why can't I control it because the bear looks in anguish partly because yeah, it's like yeah. you can see its skull um, it's vaguely reminiscent of the Yu-Gi-Oh card Mammoth Graveyard no doubt an intentional nod by Alex Garland um, but it looks in distress. It looks like it's in pain. And yeah, I'm, it's funny you mentioned Brooke seeing this scene and being like chills. Cause I remember watching the film for the first time being like, this is great. Slow burn, investigative science fiction, uh, sort of, um, mesmerizing visuals. And I was really into it. And then I got to that scene. I'm like, Ooh, this is even better than I thought it was <laughs> like, this is, and then there's, I would argue the film even goes on to top itself later on with the final confrontation between Natalie Portman and her double, which I think it's, sorry, I have to 
more, more cat stuff, which I think is, um, it's less, it's not a horror set piece anymore. And it's maybe less intense, but in its own way is another uh, just sort of brilliant merger of uh, amazing scene construction and filmmaking and also dropping you with these more tantalizing ideas about like, why is this so unnerving to me beyond just the visceral intensity of it? So yeah, I'm a big fan of Annihilation. One thing I like about the bear too, which you, which you also touched upon Brooke is like, there's actually a reason for the bear to do this like evolutionarily, right? Like it's yeah, like it's an actual tactic, a hunting tactic is to lure them in. I'm pretty sure, I don't know, I'm not a great biologist or anything, but I'm pretty sure there are birds that do something like this, right? Well, they'll mimic the call of, of a prey or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the yeah, the fact that it would do it to humans is horrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's so awesome. Yeah. And the yeah, fact that too, scene it, stands out to me big time. The sound becomes even more terrifying when you see its face and you see it make that sound not off screen, but you yeah. see it like because it it is unnatural. Like it Very doesn't jarring. totally fit. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Great pick. Great, great film. Great pick. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Should I take, us, take home? us home, Ian? You bet. Okay. So my scene comes from mid- Midsummer or Midsomar, however you want to pronounce it. I'm going to say Midsummer because it's easier to say. Uh, which came out in 2019. And the scene I want to talk about is actually just a really simple shot. So in Midsummer, this group of, of college students is going to this town far north in Sweden. Um, to explore and to to investigate their culture and they're, they're kind of going in part uh vacation but also part educational purposes because these are anthropologists and so they're kind of learning about different cultures and as they're driving up to this town there's a scene where they're driving on the highway and the camera turns upside down and so it does this kind of rotation and so then for a while there, you're seeing the car at the top of the screen driving like it's upside down and then it twists around again. And that, I want to talk about that scene because it's very striking. And I think it's a great example of how in control this director is of this movie. Because when you think of something like turning a camera upside down, you think, well, any idiot with a camera would try that. Like they'd be like, oh, this is a cool shot. Like, Right, like if you're filming a movie with your friends and with your little handheld camera, you're like, oh, let's turn it upside down. It's going to be so cool. Look at this. Uh, but but with, with Midsummer, there's a real purpose behind it. And I think that purpose is that it's almost like a, like a portal because they're now entering this world that even, even though it's still their world, it's not because things are really going to, we're going to find out that things are really messed up there and that the, the values and the v- world viewpoints that this place that they're going to has is going to be wildly different than anything that they know. And so it's almost like, a, <laughs> I'm thinking like the wardrobe in Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, right? Like it's a portal to another world, but it's, it's not and so he shows that it is through this little camera rotation. And so it's almost like, okay, we are now entering a different place altogether. 
And then as the movie goes on, you're like, okay, this place that we're in now is disturbing. And, uh, and so that scene is kind of the introduction to that. And I mean, say what you will about that cult. They have a great retirement plan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. They take care of you. (laughs) Yeah. As efficiently as they can. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's my scene because I think that Ari Aster, the director of this, just really has a clear vision of what he wants. And he's able to use all the tools available to him, even if it's just simple camera shots like this, to get across the ideas that he wants to. And I think that's part of the reason why this is such a, in my opinion, such a strong and effective horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great pick. I I really like this movie. I've come to like really respond to it. Um, I'm slowly coming around to thinking it's actually Astor's best film so far. Oh, um, I'm absolutely there. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I liked Hereditary more in the immediate moment, but I think Midsummer's ideas are actually a bit more complex and have more, I, I'll put it this way, Midsummer scared me in a totally different way the second mm-hmm. time when I really got what it was doing, um, which is kind of spoilery, so I won't go into it. But I like this moment that you highlight because I think it speaks to something that Astor really demonstrates with this film, which is a certain restraint in that a lot of the film is like, it's presented very simply and this is a moment of like a more of an obvious cinematic flourish that he does, but he uses them very sparingly. Yeah. And in a similar way, there's not that many overtly scary scenes in this movie. There's not too many horror set pieces and he, he parses them out. Like there's a lot of space between them. I think the movie is consistently unnerving, but it only is if you're kind of really yes, paying attention yes. and thinking about the psychology of it, but he is smart enough and sort of courageous enough to be like, okay, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to be patient and I'm going to be as restrained as I can somewhere. So elsewhere where I, you know, twist the knife or twist the camera in this case, it has more impact. And it's more of the announcement of moving into unknown territory or moving into a dangerous scenario, moving into a scary scenario carries more weight because of that stillness and restraint elsewhere. Um, Which I think this speaks to in a nice subtle way. And is a good also like, visceral way to indicate a change in the movie's tone and pacing and story we're entering a new territory yeah it's a this is a disturbing movie it is very unsettling and just strangely compelling (laughs) i don't know what it is about it but i just keep coming like thinking about it right and saying okay this movie shouldn't work for me because it's it's so disturbing that I should hate this movie, <laughs> but I don't, I keep thinking about it and I keep coming back to it. And I, it's just really compelling. And I think it's because he just has such a strong style. Like you said, it's, he's restrained in that style. Um, but what he does just always seems to work. He's, mm-hmm. he gets exactly what he wants to get from the audience with his techniques. I think kind of like what Dan was talking about with trauma too, like a lot of this movie is about trauma and, you know, a lot of directors don't really want to go into that part for horror, especially like when it comes to the slasher genre. I mean, this isn't it, but um, a lot of what trauma is too is a slow burn and not really, you don't really have all the puzzle pieces fit together right away. Um, So to watch kind of this character go through these events and um and how they deal with it and uh their choices later on and 
everything kind of intertangled. Um, I think, yeah, it definitely shows that uh, the care that Ari Aster puts into this movie and like, okay, like if we're going to talk about this, let's talk about it in a way that uh, is done masterfully, I guess. Well, and it's a good way too. I like that you bring up the, the trauma thing. The fact that like it can, it's a delicate line to ride because once you start addressing that kind of real world pain, it's very easy to slip into exploitation. And I, I know a lot of people argue Aster does this already. I don't, I think he's, I think he hits the right tone, but I like how this example of like this camera movement, it's not an exploitative thing. It's not even an overtly necessarily violent thing, but it's just a subtle way with the context of what we know about this main character that Florence Pugh plays and the various uh, sort of things she's going through for that move in context of that character is more unnerving because we know her so well and we know how vulnerable she is right now, which ends up being what the movie is about. Right. Um, so. I totally ruined someone's date night with this movie. Because <laughs> when I saw it, I saw it in the matinee and there was only three of us, me and then a couple came in and I'm like, I am definitely messing up their plans. But then I'm like, after watching the movie, I'm like, this really wasn't the movie you should have gone to for date night anyway. (laughs) I I remember there was like a tweet that came out shortly after the movie was released where it's like, yeah, I've listened to one couple leaving the theater and the guy was like, I don't know. I don't think he deserved that. And she responded, you would say that. (laughs) So, you know, he didn't deserve it though. I'm going to say it. That's part of what's brilliant about this film. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And just, going off on my first view the scene that i'm talking about too i almost think personally it really pulled me in when i watched that scene because i was actually i was i was more or less in right off the bat even the the opening phone call which was just a phone call between them and i'm like okay this is an interesting way to start off this movie i'm intrigued right they're starting very character based and then so the movie was drawing me in and then this scene so it's a portal in the sense of the movie, but it's also a portal in the sense of now I am completely in. I'm liking visually what I'm seeing. I like how it's making me a little bit creeped out as we go through. And I am all in on this movie, which is a movie I normally wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you're this. Uh, you're this. I mean, it's. I guess that makes sense, though, because like thinking about it, I was going to say it's interesting you're so in on this movie because it does seem outside of the things you normally gravitate to but it, it has moments of intense violence but it's not gratuitous no. and they're they're very specific and they don't even last that long so it's perhaps not totally surprising that you would respond to this film a lot more than you would necessarily i don't know rob zombies halloween too for example <laughs> <True>. <laughs> so yeah but nice. i will give a warning if you haven't seen midsummer go in cautiously yeah because it's that could extend for a lot of the films we talked about today actually yeah (laughs) the ring is the only one that's like it's it's saying something that the ring is probably the easiest viewing of what we've maybe it follows i don't know no (laughs) i would say the ring (laughs) is probably the easiest view the thing is the ring gets really loud all of a sudden so you when they're on the boat and the there's the horses just being like if you're watching that at home and you got to, you know, you don't want to be too loud to bother like neighbors or whatever. And it's like dialogue scenes. You got to kind of turned up and then that happens. It's like, oh my God, what is happening? So 
you know, I just thought meant like being prepared and like going in cautiously, like in terms of a mental state, yeah. I would say the ring is easiest to kind of just True. go into. I don't know. I don't know if I, it is though, just like Naomi Watts despair trying to save her kid. Like there's a little bit of uh, Ellen Burstyn and exorcist vibes there in terms of just like desperately doing, which is also interesting the way that the ring implicates her character by the end without going into spoilers. Cause Brooke says we can't spoil it, even though it's 20 years old. No, can't spoil <laughs> so yeah, I mean, none of these are necessarily easy watches. The Ring's probably the most fun to watch, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Halloween 2, if you're a sicko. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess I am, because I'm like, I like it a lot now. <laughs> you're all in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I, think we had some good, I think we had some good picks this week. Mm. Um, yeah, some really, really strong movies, I think. So if even if you're not yeah yeah it's hard to recommend if you're not a horror movie horror movie fan in general and if you are you've probably seen these already so if that's the case i hope we did them justice talking about them well i mean if you're not if you're if you're cautious you're not really a horror fan the ring and it follows are probably two to start that's what with, i would I say too yeah um and i'll also say if you're listening and you were you relate to my story of not initially liking rob zombies halloween's very much and thinking or didn't see them you just heard they were bad maybe give them a shot. They will not work for everyone. They don't totally work for me. They don't fully work for me rather. There's things about both of them, even too, now that I'm, I'm much more enthusiastic about, I think the Sam Loomis storyline is a little too on the nose. I like the idea, but it's really like, all right, I get it, Rob, but um, they're more interesting films than they're given credit for. And they're, if nothing else, easily, easily the most interesting Halloween movies since Halloween. So maybe season of the witch is in there too <laughs> that one's pretty good all right so, yeah, yeah awesome uh brooke any last words or any anything you want to share with us about mm. where do you have you stuff video? online or anything my video <laughs> yeah brooke has a video on the eyebrow cinema youtube channel. yeah i do um i did like a little compilation of clips for course a couple a year ago i guess but um i thought i would it would be fun to share with people um these uh clips of magic and the duality of magic i suppose um so that's cool if you want to check that out um great um go watch spooky movies um happy halloween to everyone um yeah 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 that's that's yeah because we're hoping to get this released on halloween we'll see if hopefully that happens i will get it to you We'll finish recording and I'll get it to you within an hour, hopefully. Okay. Well, I might. Yeah, it's good. You, not that you have to post it right away. You've got other stuff <laughs> yeah. to do on a Saturday. That's cool. But I'll try to get it to you as quick as possible so that at least that part is taken care of. Awesome. Yeah, so hopefully you guys have all out there have been watching some awesome horror movies on your own. And uh, let us know. So we've been talking about modern horror the last 10, 20 years. What are your favorites that have come out in the last few years? Um, tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds let us know yeah because we love when people talk to us i have one more question before we close out ian let's do it are you do you have any like plans for halloween itself halloween night um i'm going to be marking math tests (laughs) the horror (laughs) i do want to watch halloween i haven't watched original halloween in a while so that's my plan nice i'm gonna watch halloween on halloween that's a good pick. How about you guys? Obviously. Um, well, we'll be finishing up our Universal Monsters Blu-ray set, a film a day. So we'll be 
closing out with the creature walks among us which um is definitely the weakest of the black lagoon trilogy but i think it's kind of interesting so should be fun Mm -hmm. and we might go see the new halloween in theaters possibly oh yeah it seems like an appropriate halloween thing to do and we still haven't seen it yet yeah i haven't seen it yet either my expectations are pretty middling i don't think anyone likes it but (laughs) i've heard mixed things yeah yeah so you never know you do fingers crossed you do love rob zombies halloween too now so i do yeah (laughs) yeah anything could happen well rob zombies the master of cinema (laughs) and music he's just an all-around talent maybe i just want rob zombie to like me i don't know that's possible all right, Rob so, Zombie, tweet at us. Let us know that you're a fan of Dan. Yes, <laughs> I need the validation. <laughs> right. All right. Well, Brooke, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll catch you next time. Have a good Halloween.